It does seem like somewhat ironically during the Trump administration that there's been actually a significant increase in the interest to learn more specifically about what policies can achieve in terms of actual emissions reductions. We, in particular, over the last couple of years, have really seen a lot of interest from both at the state level and also at the federal level from policymakers who are trying to understand what different policies that have been proposed or being discussed might actually be able to achieve. Joe Biden had a super, super Tuesday. The former vice president had a monumental comeback in the Democratic primary. We'll discuss the results and what that means for climate in this election. Plus, there was another major winner this week. Yes, we have the results of our policy bracket competition from last week's episode. In the latter half of this show, I discuss how to pick the best policies for cleaning up the economy with experts at the think tank Energy Innovation. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. I was on the road reporting in Michigan this week, so I caught up with my co-hosts by phone. In a moment, you'll hear from Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat. He's a partner at Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. And there's Shane Skelton, a Republican. He's a partner at S2C Pacific and former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. We kicked off our conversation by talking about Joe Biden's surprisingly strong showing on Super Tuesday. He's now been awarded 627 delegates to Bernie Sanders' 551 delegates. So Biden undoubtedly has momentum, but it's still a very close and competitive race. Interestingly, Joe Biden won 34% of voters who said that climate change is the most important issue to them, while Bernie Sanders captured 28 of such voters, according to a Washington Post compilation of exit polls. Brandon, Shane, and I discussed the Super Tuesday results. We also chat about the winner of last week's Decarb Madness episode. No, that's not a fad diet. It's the podcast where we had four energy experts duke it out over who could put together the best policy bracket for cleaning up the electricity sector. Later on in the show, I catch up with Megan Mahajan and Robbie Orvis at the Think Tank Energy Innovation to discuss the policy simulator we used to evaluate last week's policy brackets. If you haven't heard the Decarb Madness episode yet, I recommend going back to give it a listen before learning what the policies Energy Innovation picked to decarbonize the U.S. economy. And with that, here goes. Brandon and Shane, greetings from Detroit. I'm here covering General Motors' new massive EV strategy, but that is not by any stretch of the imagination the biggest news out today following Super Tuesday. So what did you guys think? Brandon, let's go to you. You are our Democrat here. So what did you make of the results? Joe Biden really had a good night. I think that's an understatement, Julia. Uh, He had a terrific night. Um, And I think it was a great night for Democrats overall. The turnout is uh, exceptional. And if I were in Shane's shoes, I would be worried about the movement of suburban voters uh, to the Democratic Party. We saw this movement starting in the 2018 elections and the midterms, uh, and a lot of those folks turned out last night in a Democratic primary, uh, and they seem to be very excited about Joe Biden. 
Why do you think that is? Like, what changed around Joe Biden? Because he has been criticized for not being the sharpest in the debates, sort of being uh, milquetoast on issues we cover, climate and energy, not having sort of the boldest plan, not really prioritizing it. What do you think ultimately got people to show up for him? The overriding concern from day one of this primary and what I heard at every door I knocked on in Iowa, every conversation I've had with any Democratic voter, uh, from the folks in D.C. to, you know, the people sort of on the ground, is all they want to do is beat Donald Trump. And I think they've been sort of searching for who is the best candidate to do that. Uh, and when it came time for 14 states to vote, you know, Joe Biden had got a little momentum going in Nevada. He had a really good debate in South Carolina. He had a really good election in South Carolina. And I think he voters are now have the confidence that he he can win. He can beat Donald Trump. Uh, but again, there's still you know two thirds of the delegates out there, uh, pledged delegates. Uh, so we've seen many twists and turns in this election over the last just 72 hours. You know, uh, so there's still a little bit of, a little bit of time here to go. But if you're Bernie Sanders or anybody else, uh, the window is narrowing to you know, catch in the pledge delegates and you really got to make something happen here in the next few weeks, because I think by beginning of April, 90% of the delegates will have been allocated. Shane, are you worried when you uh, look at the Biden turnout? Are you worried about that suburban vote for Republicans? Not at all. And, and first of all, greetings from D.C. I thought our um, our listeners would like to know that I'm actually current, currently sitting in Mandy Gunasekera's house, the new chief of staff at EPA, just to, just to ruffle some feathers with our, uh, our more progressive listeners. We had her on. We had her on in our first season. She uh, gave us a full hour of her time, and, you know, she uh, took on some tough questions. So appreciate her doing that. I know. There's a water-resistant lawn here. There's, there's fake grass, so, you know, conserving water, all those good things. I came here from the Capitol Hill Club. For uh, our listeners that don't know, that's the private Republican club that also houses the RNC uh, and the NRCC. So I'm having a fully Republican day today, which is exciting. Um, so, so to answer your question, no, I'm not worried at all. In fact, I actually think last night was a good night for America. Um, Republicans obviously have a candidate at the top of the ticket. So, you know, I don't view turnout as, as anything to, to think about positively or negatively for down ballot races where, you know, people are uh, typically less involved in primary elections when their top of their tickets are already occupied. So what I think is, uh, it was a good day for America, and it was a good day for uh, progress on climate policy, the things we talk about on this podcast, and here's why. Um, voters, Democratic voters, soundly rejected sort of the irrational progressivism and liberalism uh, coming from the more radical wing of their party. And now what we have is a traditional uh, election season where you have uh, moderates on both sides, by the way, in down-ballot races in the House who resisted either more liberal or more conservative challengers who wanted to sort of push the status quo one way or the other. I think this is sort of a return to normalcy where Democrats nominated a candidate who I think, you know, sort of lives in the mainstream, in the moderate uh, zone where I think most policy is made. So I really believe that if there was a Bernie Sanders, and there still might be, I understand a lot's been unsaid, but I really believe that Bernie Sanders ran away with this or, you know, there was some other radical leaving the ticket, there wouldn't be any progress on climate policy. And the other things, frankly, that I care about because it's sort of the my way or the highway, um, if you don't go, you know, 100% to the extreme, you're not welcome in this discussion. Let's tear this thing down uh, rather than, you know, work to make it better. And I think that Democratic voters show that there's no appetite for that this cycle. The appetite is to get stuff done uh, and work towards, uh, you know, 
solutions are achievable. And I, I think so. I think I guess we agree that that was a good night for America. Shane, but just from a math perspective, if Democrats have been you know doing so well in urban areas and are now peeling away that suburban vote from the Republican Party, how do, that doesn't concern you at all. I mean, there's not enough rural white guys to win national elections if you're losing urban and suburban voters, right? Yeah, I mean, if, if the trend in the general election is that Republicans continue to lose those suburban seats, I'm going to be incredibly concerned. Uh, but also, I think it would be an alarm bell that, you know, voters don't just change. People live their day-to-day lives and they experience life in the way that they do and they respect, reward, or punish policymakers based on how things are going. So if Republican uh, voters feel like the party is going in a direction that they're not happy with, then we can't be upset with them. you got to you know, rethink the way that, that, that you're engaging in the policy sphere and you got to start to promote ideas that are more popular. I don't think that's necessarily what's going to happen. I think Republicans are going to take back those seats uh, in Orange County. I think Republicans are going to take back some of these suburban districts around Pennsylvania and some of those more industrial states. So, yes, Brandon, if we get wiped out in those districts again uh, this cycle, uh, I will be worried about that. And the political side of me, honestly, not not the policymaking side, but the political side of me was sort of rooting for Bernie Sanders, just knowing that that would mean down ballot, we get the House back, we expand our lead in the Senate, and life becomes real easy to be a Republican. But the sort of policymaking rational side of me wants to return to some sense of normalcy. I mean, I'll point out that I'm here in Michigan and several people I've spoken to have just said politics here on the Democratic side have become really toxic. Like you can't even say who you're supporting in the primary because you might get into, I don't know, some kind of fight with your neighbor on the Democratic side. So it doesn't feel to me like it was a total win for America here. I have some experience with that. You know, we on the Obama 08 campaign, we were in a very heated, contested primary with Hillary Clinton. And there was a lot of healing that needed to happen uh, over that summer. And it took a lot of work. The stakes are higher for this. The emotions are, are very intense right now on the Democratic side because of the overwhelming desire to beat Donald Trump. People think he is the most dangerous president that we've ever had. And the desire to, I cannot emphasize enough the desire that we, to beat him. We are so united about that. But that, but people have different ideas of what's the best way to beat him. Bernie Sanders is making one case. Joe Biden's making another. There's still many states left that have to, that have to vote. And, and they'll be making their case on that. Uh, but I, I do think that, you know, the campaigns, once the dust settles, um, whoever comes out on top, We'll, do, we'll have to do some healing. And that means like going to their delegates, you know, um, bringing them into the, the sort of circle and then organizing them to help organize other supporters uh, around this. That's, what, that's what's going to happen. Julia, the, I think that, you know, I don't think you're wrong in diagnosing the problem, but I didn't say it was a great night for the Democratic Party. I said it was a great night for America. I think Democrats working through their demons and sort of expelling or at least seemingly uh, defying expectations against the Bernie Sanders wing of the party is ultimately a good thing for their party and ultimately a good thing for our country. So I didn't mean it was going to be easy and no one cares what I think about the Democratic Party. Uh, but, but my point is, as an American, generally, I really like when we play football between the 40s. I like centrist policy. I like moderate policy. I like getting things done. I like working together. Um, and, and those things I just think weren't going to be possible uh, with a Bernie Sanders type representation.
Julia, one thing I'd love to see us all agree on is people standing in line for three hours to vote is absurd. And we have to fix this election system. I mean, it's just crazy. It was, it was great to see that people are so committed, uh, but it's a lot to ask people to stand in line for three hours. Um, and we need to fix that and make it easier. Well, Brandon, let me ask you this, because I was actually wondering about that. So um, I'm with you that voter access is important. I don't think that's somewhere we really disagree or an argument that we would have. But what I did think last night was that in states like California, where you can vote, I don't know what it is, 40, 48 days earlier or something like that, you actually might lose your vote in a certain way during the primaries. Because, for example, there were a lot of votes cast for candidates that were no longer in the race as of the election date. So making it easier for people to vote is obviously a positive thing. But but have we tried so hard to make it easier for people to vote that people are actually having their vote nullified by voting for candidates that aren't on the ballot? Regardless, you got to have enough machines on election day so that people aren't standing in line for hours. That's, yeah. That seems like something that needs to be addressed. And yeah, I think overall turnout was high. But as one reporter pointed out, you know, the youth vote wasn't all that overwhelming, which is a repeated issue for Democrats and especially for Bernie Sanders, who says he can bring out that youth vote and bring together this broad coalition. You know, Brandon, I know, again, as we've mentioned, you are in touch with the Sunrise Movement and other youth activists on the climate side. I feel like they probably churned up. Do they have any thoughts or do you have any thoughts on the youth vote and how much or little that materialized in the end? I mean, they overwhelmingly support progressive candidates. I think, you know, the numbers are pretty extraordinary from 18 to 30 year olds, uh, their support for both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Now, are they generating enough of those numbers to compensate for the other uh, voters that in the coalition that Biden is building between suburban voters, African-American voters? Um, that, you know, remains to be seen. There, it will require an enormous youth turnout uh, to overcome those numbers. There's a, still a lot of baby boomers out there. <laughs> so it's just a math question. All right. Well, let's move on to quickly touch on a big Senate energy bill that came out in recent days. Uh, this is the culmination of a lot of work that uh, Republican Lisa Murkowski is doing, along with uh, Democrat Senator Joe Manchin. It's uh, it's called the American Energy Innovation Act. It's 555 pages, and you can read more on this on Green Tech Media. Uh, it contains um, hundreds of millions of dollars of funding to boost research and development in wind and solar, energy storage, the smart grid, electric vehicles. Uh, it would also include funding for, I believe, carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, the energy storage tax credit didn't make it out of the budget bill last time, but there are other elements here trying to get that energy storage boost that lawmakers were looking for. And I know that even in these last days before it goes up for a vote, uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer is trying to get an EV tax credit put in this bill. Uh, hard to know where that will all pan out. Obviously, McConnell has a lot of sway here, uh, but there could be a comprehensive uh, result to come out of this that I think a lot of people have been waiting for. Shane, I know you've done some reading up on it. Do you want to give us a quick overview and your thoughts on how uh, how meaningful that bill is? Yeah, I mean, I think it's meaningful uh, for, for doing what it does. I think a lot of the press that I've read around it that's negative um, <clears throat> alludes to the fact that it doesn't do enough to address climate change. And I think that's that's certainly true. I don't think anyone would say 
um, this is this is the bill that's going to tackle climate change. But I think what people also have to remember is not every energy bill is a climate change bill. And so one of the things that this bill does is it helps spur uh, advanced technologies that will either reduce carbon emissions or uh, help in sequestering carbon from, from carbon emitting sources. So uh, is this the perfect uh, silver bullet that's gonna you know, make climate change a thing of the past? Of course not, but that doesn't mean it's bad and progress isn't always bad. I'm not saying I support the bill or oppose the bill because I haven't spent a ton of time digging through it. I kind of know what the, the, the larger provisions are, but I think that, that people's knee jerk reaction to well, this doesn't cap carbon emissions or this doesn't create, you know, a net zero economy wide system. It's not a climate bill. So, of course, it doesn't do those things. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pass any energy bills, especially if they can help advance technologies that will reduce emissions in the long term. I guess, do either of you have an insight on like what his chances of passing are and McConnell actually putting it up? Because one thing in his tenure has just been a lack of bills coming to the floor. Do, does it seem like this one has momentum? Yeah, this bill is going to the floor. Uh, it, you know, in theory, would go to the floor this week uh, without a lot of the amendment debate that's happening and without a potential to need to pass, um, you know, emergency funding for uh, coronavirus response. But uh, this bill will definitely go to the floor and it'll be passed off the Senate floor by the end of next week, no doubt. Julia, I'm waiting to see what amendments get offered and are accepted into this. I mean, I was, uh, you know, a little bit deflated that something as um, easy and which should be low-hanging low fruit like voluntary building codes were not included uh, in the bill, that that was seen as contentious. Or some of these EV tax credits or tax credits for solar and wind uh, extensions that should be, um, there should be consensus around. I mean, that is really low-hanging fruit. Uh, so I will be following the amendment process and hopefully uh, those things can make it into this. And so to be clear, uh, I agree with Brandon that, that those things should be low-hanging fruit. I'm not saying that the bill's better off for not having them. In fact, I shouldn't even presume to know how senators are going to vote, but I'm just saying it will go to the floor for a vote. It won't be held up by, by Senate leadership. Yeah, the other thing I'll note is that there's a lot of funding in here for the Department of Energy's uh, Renewable Energy and Efficiency Office. We had Daniel Simmons on the show recently talking about uh, their priorities. This bill would direct $270 million per year through 2025 to improve solar's efficiency, energy efficiency, cost effectiveness, and reliability. Another $120 million per year through 2025 would go towards wind power improvements. Uh, but of course, some criticism there has been the DOE not spending their budgets fast enough. So even if this does pass, there'll be still pressure on the implementation side at the agency level. And now let's turn to results from last week's Decarb Madness episode, the policy bracket game for energy wonks who don't want to play with our future. We had a lot of fun putting that together. So if you haven't listened to the show yet, go back and check it out. The takeaways are still relevant as long as we're trying to reduce carbon emissions. So listen to that episode. It will also make the rest of the show make a lot more sense. So Decarb Madness may sound like a fad diet. It's not. It was our name for a show where we had four contestants duke it out over who could put together the best set of policies to decarbonize the electricity sector. We had Leah Stokes at the University of California, Santa Barbara, Jesse Jenkins at Princeton, and our co-hosts Shane and Brandon each lay out their policy bracket. Then we went to Twitter to get listener feedback on whose policy bracket is the most effective and the most politically feasible. So who do you guys think won? Do you have any guesses? Because you're not really on Twitter. I feel like I can ask you this. Me? Me, 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 me. <laughs> Shane, you did have some strong supporters on, on the Twitter sphere, I will say. 
But it was Leah Stokes. She won the public opinion poll. It sounds like she really won the day with her messaging around a Green New Deal plan. And that hinged in her in her policy bracket on uh, efficiency gains for residences rather than businesses. And she opted not to go with the carbon tax because she said that's regressive. Whereas Jesse Jenkins, who came in second, did, did go for a carbon tax and he focused on commercial buildings. And I'm sorry to say, you guys, Brandon and Shane, you, you really lagged in the polls a little bit. Sorry about that. Well, every Cinderella team in March Madness, sometimes their day comes due and they just, you know, they go up against the Blue Bloods, the Kentuckys, the Dukes, the North Carolinas, and they just don't have enough. Uh, so that seemed to happen to me today. But I will say, I think a lot of, you know, some people in the Democratic uh, Party are learning that what's on Twitter may not be representative of the general public. <laughs> <laughs> And, and here's one thing that uh, Brandon and I can agree on. Well, two things we can agree on. One, Twitter is not the general public. And two, it, it is. It's, it's, it's basketball season. I mean, my Wisconsin Badgers were left for dead, unranked, um, you know, not, not looking like they were going to qualify for the tournament. Now, if we beat Northwestern tonight, which should be, you know, about as easy as me beating Brandon in this challenge, uh, we're going to be first place in the Big Ten, which is right now rated the number one conference. So some people show up to play in March. And I think, you know, I'm not super impressed with the way that Twitter responded to uh, to my analysis, but uh, I'm, I'm 100% agreeing with, agreement with Brandon that that's just not representative. Just not. Well, the underdog theme really brings us right back around to Biden in that Democratic primary. So uh, coming full circle here. If I can just add one thing really quickly, I want to say to anybody out there that is listening um, who's a part of the, the political process, you know, I have been there. I have won uh, you know, I've had nights where we won like November of 2008, one of the best nights of my life. I've had hard nights with hard losses, gut-wrenching losses uh, in my political career. And I just think for anybody that's out there that's been a part of this process, whether you were on Pete's campaign or Amy's campaign, any of the campaigns, or you're with an organization like Sunrise and you're out there and you're doing voter contact. I mean, so many people, so many young people have put their heart and soul into this presidential race. And I just think it's great. I'm proud of all of them. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it comes out your way and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but, be, you know, having the courage to go out there and fight for what you believe in uh, and make those sacrifices is something that is a really great thing about our country. And it's not over yet. We're going to be talking about the primaries more. Super Tuesday is just one milestone in this journey. And of course, the general is coming up right around the corner. For now, though, we're going to switch to my interview with Energy Innovations uh, policy experts who created the simulator that we used for our Decarb Madness episode. We're going to learn more from them about how that simulator is set up, uh, what Energy Innovation thinks is the ideal policy bracket, and get their thoughts on what we picked in our episode last week. So that's coming up next. This episode is brought to you with support from EarthX, a nonprofit environmental forum that aims to educate and inspire action towards a more sustainable future. This week, EarthX is launching the EarthX League community, where you can interact with other members, ask questions, read news, and sign up for the 50 for 50 challenge to test how many actions you can take to protect the planet. Your political climate hosts have already signed up to take the energy pledge. This is where you can take 10 steps to reduce your carbon footprint. They're small steps, but they're meaningful. And so this week we tasked ourselves with trying to first leave open windows instead of using the AC, 
running the dishwasher only once full and turning off lights when we don't need them. Brandon and Shane, how did you guys do so far? We're just a couple days in, but uh, has this been easy enough for you to take on? I did awesome, honestly. So I always follow everyone in my house around, uh, turn the lights off, and it annoys the you-know-what out of me. And I've talked to my kids about it several times, but no one seems to care. So um, (laughs) I did continue to do that. I always do that. The HVAC, the heating and air thing was a little bit different because I just sort of assumed that I was the only one who ever touches the thermostat. And so I had the windows open because this is one of those weeks in California where it was hot during the day, but really cold at night. And so I, you know, open up the windows so that my kids would be okay. So I woke up one morning and my heater was on and I said to my wife, "Uh, did you turn the heater on when the windows are open? She said, yeah, well, the kids were cold. My kids were naked. They had underwear on. I'm like, well, no kidding. They're cold. Like get get pajamas on. I had to shut that off, but that mistake was not made again for the rest of the week. So I came through and I educated my wife a little bit. There will be only pajamas in Shane's household. No sleeping in the nude. It's not energy efficient. (laughs) Brandon, how about you? Those are easy. I've, I always do those. My old boss, uh, Secretary Chu uh, at the DOE, he used to follow uh, us around and make sure that we had like, unplugged our devices uh, at the end of each night. So I got in the habit of being uh, very conscious about energy usage uh, and making sure we're doing that at home. So I I had an easy time doing these also because I actually don't have a dishwasher and I don't have AC. So I'm super efficient, turns out. Also broke. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) You should leave that in. You got to leave that in. (laughs) But in all seriousness, the challenges will get tougher, I think, with time. We're going to have our production assistant, Andrew Robinson, help us pick these tasks and challenges to take on in the coming weeks. So we'll be doing more as, a, as we lead up to the EarthX Conference and Expo, which takes place on April 23rd to the 26th. And we will be at the EarthX Conference and Expo. So we hope to see you there. We can chat about the challenges we've taken. For more information, you can visit earthx.org or you can go straight to the EarthX League website where you can take the challenges. That's at earthxleague.earthx.org. Submit your name, sign up, and see how many challenges you can take on. So I'm Robbie Orvis. I'm the Director of Energy Policy Design over here at Energy Innovation. Uh, And I work with Megan, who will introduce herself in a minute, on our uh, energy policy modeling. Great. And my name is Megan Mahajan. I'm a policy analyst here at Energy Innovation. And along with Robbie and a couple others on our team, uh, we do a lot of modeling of different energy policy solutions. Well, first off, thank you guys so much for helping me out with this wacky task of coming up with the policy bracket style game uh, to decarbonize the power sector. Uh, When I came to you with this, did you just scratch your heads? Were you wondering what I was getting at? (laughs) No, we were really excited to join in on the fun. Good, good. Okay, so you guys get in the weeds. You were the ones who came up with the simulator that we used for our decarb madness game. Uh, And so I wanted to talk to you about the scenarios that you guys have looked at, because I know Energy Innovation has actually come up with scenarios. You've modeled out, first of all, how the U.S. can meet its Paris Agreement pledge. And you've also modeled out how to reach net zero emissions by 2050, and that's economy-wide, not just in the power sector. So explain those scenarios and how Energy Innovation proposes reaching those goals. Uh, So we have modeled a lot of different combinations of policies with our energy policy simulator. And really, the whole 
concept behind the simulator is to be able to look at packages of policies together uh, because policies will interact with each other and uh, it's important to look across the entire economy when we're looking at these uh, policy packages. So the USNDC scenario that you mentioned is one we have online as an example scenario, which is a package of policies from all of the different major sectors across the US. We're looking at electricity, transportation, buildings in industry. And it's just a selection of some of the policies that we would recommend to policymakers that meet that target in 2025. Uh, but there are a whole variety of ways that you could use the different levers in the simulator to achieve that same target. Moving to the net zero scenario, that's where we start to have to crank up the policy levers in our model uh, to some of the kind of max levels of ambition. Uh, so in each sector, we need to look at what are the ways that we can really drive emissions down to zero by 2050. And in this case, that's where you start to have to think about uh, stock turnover in some of these sectors, especially transportation and buildings, where our buildings last for a really long time, building components. Uh, if you know you buy a heater, you won't be replacing that for quite a while. Same with a new car. Uh, that's going to take, you know, maybe 10 to 15 years before you buy another one. Uh, so really aggressive and early action is what we find is really key when designing our net zero scenario. So there's so many, you know, variables here. So I, you know, give kudos to you guys for thinking through all these pieces. And I think we'll get into in a moment some of the assumptions that you used in coming up with the model. Uh, but first, I want to know what did you put in that path to zero policy kit that you guys came up with, that model scenario, looking at the more ambitious one to 2050? Because we should note, and as we've actually discussed on the show, that's a goal that House Democrats have outlined in their landmark climate plan and, and others are discussing as well. So how did you guys figure out was the best way to get there? It's definitely a combination of policies. So there aren't any silver bullets here, uh, but kind of fitting with the general framework of decarbonize the electricity sector and then electrify everything uh, is a very high level look of what this policy package does. So a clean electricity standard is really key for the electricity sector. And within some of the different sectors, for example, getting our vehicles electrified pretty early, same in buildings, we want to start getting efficient electric components into our buildings as early as possible. In industry, we definitely want to turn to zero emission sources of power uh, when possible. Hydrogen is a key technology that we bring into industry to help with some of those high heat processes. And then also in industry, because it is a more heterogeneous sector uh, where it's you have process emissions coming from some of these industries, such as HFCs. Uh, we implement uh, uh, rapid phase down of those, methane capture and destruction. Uh, and those are some of the largest policies that we implement in our package. 
So let's drill down a little bit on the electricity sector since that's where we started with our game, which we wanted to do more, but we sort of had to limit it just for the sake of discussion. Uh, but what was specifically in your power sector policy plan? You mentioned the clean energy standard, the low carbon energy standard. I think if I'm not mistaken, you assume that a large part of that is going to be renewables. Talk about just how much more renewables growth you'd have to see by 2050 to get to the, the policy scenario and the carbon reductions that you're thinking about? So we have a, a 100% clean electricity standard. Now that covers all sources of clean electricity, including, of course, nuclear. Um, but we find that given today's and projected costs, both for kind of the newer technologies, solar PV and onshore wind, as well as some of the emerging technologies like offshore wind, we find that um, by and large, the new clean power that's built tends to be those renewables, the onshore, offshore wind and solar PV. And we find that quite a bit is built uh, in the net zero scenario. Now, of course, one thing to remember is that in addition to decarbonizing the power sector, we're also electrifying a lot of demand in industry, buildings and transport. And so that creates an even greater demand for new renewables. But we're finding that uh, in, in later years in our model, we're getting about a thousand gigawatts of, of difference between the business as usual case and uh, our net zero scenario, which again is a combination of the clean energy standard and also the electrification of demand sectors. And we have a few complementary policies as well for the power sector. Um, to help integrate those renewables. Uh, one thing we've seen is that the more flexible the power system is, the better it can accommodate higher shares of renewable technologies, particularly those that are variable like solar PV or wind. Um, and so we have uh, some complementary policies like uh, additional transmission, demand response and storage growth that are meant to help uh, integrate those really high shares of renewables. Yeah, I should say that in our uh, decarb madness game, Brandon Hurlbut, a Democrat in the show, he had a really high CES, but uh, he didn't include transmission in his policy bracket. And uh, Megan, you helped me delve a little bit deeper and we looked at the curtailment that was going to be coming from that. He did include a grid scale energy storage, but it does seem like that transmission piece and those other complementary policies are key to both balancing out cost and keeping reliability because... You know, there are other factors than just looking at that chart on carbon reductions. Definitely. So I think you mentioned there, Robbie, that in the net zero scenario, there would be an additional thousand gigawatts of wind and solar by 2050 compared to the business as usual case. So compare that to the end of 2019, where we had just over 100 gigawatts of wind power and just over 70 gigawatts of solar, including both PV and concentrating solar power. How do we get up to that additional thousand? Because the business as usual case already factors in some new renewable capacity. And so getting even further beyond that, just how tough is that going to be? It is a big uh, step change in, in the amount of renewables we're deploying. Um, and it will, would require a, a big manufacturing push. Yeah, we have done some modeling actually looking at even more ambitious timeframes such as what would it take to get to around 90% clean electricity by 2030. And in that case, 
we find that you need to increase the level of deployment of wind and solar by about three, three and a half times. Uh, I should clarify three to three and a half times our maximum rates of deployment. So looking at our years with the most wind deployment or the most solar deployment. And so that's obviously a very ambitious target, uh, but I don't think that it's outside the realm of possibility. Uh, it would mean getting to around the level of renewables deployment that China is seeing today. So while it's definitely an ambitious goal, I think it's one that we should be shooting for. And another question for you on that. Uh, two of our contestants, Leah Stokes and Jesse Jenkins, chose to extend the life of nuclear power plants in uh, their policy brackets. And I know, as I mentioned on our last podcast, that the business as usual case actually assumes uh, some degree of life extension for those plants. And if I'm not mistaken, your model uh, assumes that if those plants do go offline, renewables will largely replace them. Can you uh, clarify on that and you know, tell us how your model treats the nuclear question for existing nuclear plants at least? So we follow uh, the EIA's um, forecasted retirements from the annual energy outlook. Uh, and they actually just assume that the existing fleet stays online except for plants that have announced retirements. So in terms of the plants that are retiring, we're following um, the EIA's lead there. In terms of what replaces those plants in the business as usual scenario, um, that's just determined based on the cost of new power plants. We have a kind of a capacity expansion part of the model that builds new power plants as needed to meet demand based on uh, the costs of different types of power plants. And we tend to see a mix of renewables and gas, kind of like we've observed uh, in, in historical deployments uh, in recent years. Now, in a, a really high uh, decarbonization scenario, like a 100% clean energy standard scenario, if those plants come offline, they're, they're likely going to be replaced by uh, other renewables, most likely not nuclear. Um, we find that nuclear um, is still quite expensive in the model, especially relative to other newer technologies. And so the model will build some, but not much to, to meet that level of demand. I guess I'm curious what you guys think, stepping away from the simulator for a moment, about what do you say to situations like in Germany where nuclear plants came offline um, and they weren't necessarily replaced by renewables on a cost basis? Now, if we're talking about a mandate for a clean energy standard, maybe policies dictating that it has to be clean rather than, say, gas or coal. But in other countries, we have actually seen fossil fuels stepped in. So when we step away from the simulator, is it our all concern that the replacement for nuclear won't be clean? Uh, yeah, I, de I definitely think that's the case. And we we often tell folks that we support keeping the existing nuclear fleet around um, precisely for that reason. Any retirements of that zero carbon electricity has to be uh, paired with the addition of, of new zero carbon resources. Um, I think some states have done that. Um, I know that California has tried to pair the retirement of its nuclear plants with the addition of renewables, but um, we do often support or or tell folks that we support keeping the existing nuclear fleet around um, so that we don't lose that and have it replaced by 
either new dirty capacity like gas or an increase in generation from existing coal and gas. I was also going to add one point, which is not just is it important that the nuclear doesn't come offline soon and be replaced with gas, but keeping it on for as long as is safe is going to make it easier for us to meet that uh, renewables target. We were talking about ambitious ramp ups of deployment that would be needed to meet some of these aggressive targets. And so keeping around whatever clean generation we have right now is only going to help. I want to ask you guys about equity because our winner, according to the Twitter public opinion poll, as non-scientific as that was, uh, was Leah Stokes, who made the case that her bracket was the most equitable plan. She included residential uh, building retrofits, which are a little more expensive than, say, efficiency standards. But she said that then people could experience the benefits of the green revolution, you know, in the near term, and that money and those savings would go right into American pockets. Uh, Jesse Jenkins came in second, uh, although his bracket produced the greatest emissions uh, reductions cumulatively through 2050. He used a carbon tax to get there, uh, which was actually quite divisive online. Listeners pointed out that a carbon tax is regressive. Uh, he also chose to do commercial building efficiency standards, which would obviously benefit businesses rather than households. So I guess it's another reminder that just a sheer policy solution is not about the emissions or even the cost. There are these other factors. How do you guys think about that uh, in the context of the simulator or, or, or not? How do you factor that into your policy playbook? Well, so one thing we do, touching on the carbon tax for a minute, is um, we actually allow in the simulator, folks to look at the impact of making the carbon tax revenue neutral or not. So the energy policy simulator itself is not a macroeconomic model that calculates all types of job feedbacks and stuff. But um, we do want to allow folks to look at the difference when you assume that, um, for example, a carbon tax would be rebated versus used for, for other purposes. So We've tried to create a level of transparency by um, including that as a set of outputs. Um, more broadly, I think we we try to look at the overall reasonableness of a policy package. Um, Jesse, I know part of your criteria included um, kind of political uh, acceptance or viability, and I think each of the packages has uh, probably pros and cons on that spectrum. I thought it was interesting to see that Leah went in the direction of, of promoting equity through um, retrofits. That was kind of an interesting perspective, and whereas Jesse came from kind of the, the economist perspective. But I think generally we try to consider, you know, how different policies might be perceived and not layer on additional policies that might not be as politically feasible when we're discussing kind of how the, how the model can be used to examine uh, different policy options. Do you think that the net zero scenario that energy innovation has laid out is politically feasible? <laughs> Boy, that's a tough question. I know there are definitely people um, in Congress, there are members of the House and members of the Senate who are exploring these very questions right now. So there's clearly interest in understanding at least what it takes to get to net zero, whether or not the specific policies or uh, you know, what it actually takes to get there is politically feasible. I think that's that's a bigger question that's probably open for debate. The, the modeling is insightful in that it tells us kind of how we have to get there and, and what it takes to get there. 
one thing that we also find is that um, often in these policy scenarios, actually, we can save a lot of money at the end of the day by moving away from fossil fuels and avoiding all of that expenditure on on oil and gas and coal. And so that can help kind of make the case for these policies that can drive deep decarbonization in the American economy. Politicians just need to stay in office longer so they get the credit for those benefits. (laughs) Um, Well, that's a good point. And so I guess, are you seeing politicians, uh, you know, in their offices, and I guess policymakers of all types embrace this simulator? Do you think they're really engaging with that next level? I'm sort of trying to connect the dots here between the public sphere and what we hear about big targets and bold plans, of course, coming up in the presidential election, and other elections, and then really getting into the nitty gritty of what it takes to get there. Are you seeing people in office uh, reach out to you and engage on that other more detailed level? Definitely. Uh, it, it does seem like somewhat ironically during the Trump administration that there's been actually a significant increase in the interest to learn more specifically about what policies can achieve in terms of actual emissions reductions and not just kind of the qualitative elements of policies. So we, in particular, over the last couple of years, have really seen a lot of interest from both at the state level and also at the federal level from policymakers who are trying to understand what different policies that have been proposed or being discussed might actually be able to achieve uh, and how collectively those policies can put the U.S. on a low carbon trajectory. And so in our last minutes here, I want to walk through a little bit in a little more detail some of the other sectors that we didn't get to in our last episode, the decarb madness game. So let's start with buildings because they consume a lot of electricity, but they also are their own segment responsible for producing uh, a lot of emissions. Go into a little more detail on how you would go about decarbonizing those buildings. What did you guys prioritize? Was it the retrofits? Was it a standard? Was it all the above? How do you how do you think about that? We definitely in our net zero package take an all of the above approach. We want new components in buildings that are efficient and electric, and we want that as fast as possible. So we are targeting all new sales of electric components by 2035 in this scenario. And we pair that with retrofits as well to uh, quicken the turnover in uh, existing buildings as well. And at the same time, we're implementing more efficiency standards so that all new products sold are as efficient as possible. Great. And then transportation. So that's a big wild card here, because if our transportation sector goes electric, as you mentioned, we electrify everything that will you know, lead to an electricity sector decarbonization question. But how did you guys go about electrifying everything in your policy simulator? What were the policy tools that you picked to get there? For this net zero scenario, we went with a sales mandate for uh, zero emission vehicles. We find that setting a mandate is the way to lock in that that level of electrification needed to hit net zero, rather than just relying on things like tax credits for new electric vehicles or promoting charging infrastructure. All of these are important, uh, but we this, decided so this would be something like the corporate average fuel economy standards, but ratcheting up to like a. a designated target for EVs by a certain year having, or all vehicles by a certain year having to be EVs. Is that right? 
That's one of the ways it could be achieved. Yeah, you could use the existing CAFE standard to drive, uh, pardon the pun, to drive new zero emission vehicles uh, into the fleet. Other regions have done a bit more of a of a requirement approach where basically like targeting a specific share of sales or, or requiring a specific share of sales to be electrified. Both ways can be used um, in the model. We're actually just saying we're specifying the actual share of sales in a given year that are electric, but both policy instruments are totally viable ways to, to achieve that sales target. I just wanted to point out that the solutions are going to vary by the type of vehicle. So with light duty vehicles, we're assuming that those are going all electric, but in heavy duty vehicles like freight trucks, uh, right now, electrification as well as hydrogen are viable strategies for that, but the technology uh, isn't quite where we need it to be for some of this long haul trucking right now. So I think the jury's still out exactly what the solution's going to look like a mid-century for heavy-duty vehicles. And we uh, implement a mix of electric and hydrogen vehicles in our modeling. And I'll just add, too, that um, as we start really getting down to net zero, and depending on which region you're looking at and how much you can offset with land use, for example, you start having to look at the non uh, road forms of transportation like uh, ships and aircraft in particular. And I think that's a big area uh, of uncertainty is how uh, air travel in particular is going to become low carbon in the future. Um, so in our modeling right now, we're not really doing much on air travel. We're kind of using the uh, land use sink in the United States to offset those remaining emissions, but that will become a growing question as we approach kind of deep decarbonization, especially in regions that have less um, land use uh, sink of emissions to kind of offset their transportation emissions. Right. Well, two thoughts come to mind here. One is that I know your model does include some research and development style policies, but I imagine that's sort of hard to quantify what exactly that would mean from an emissions perspective. But to your point here, there seems to be some room for more innovation on the heavy duty truck side. Secondly, speaking about carbon sinks, how do you guys treat carbon capture and sequestration in your in your model? For our net zero scenario, we are not relying on carbon capture and storage. Uh, we are trying to pick out the sector-specific policies um, that are going to be needed to drive um, current emissions down to zero. And we didn't want to focus on the carbon capture portion of it because that is a technology that is uh, quite expensive when deployed at the scales that would be needed to make a large emissions Impact. Shane, a Republican on our podcast, will be very disappointed. That was his main policy <laughs> lever in his bracket. <laughs> <laughs> I think our view here at Energy Innovation is that carbon capture uh, and utilization will be important for certain hard to decarbonize end uses, um, but we don't want to rely on it as an overall decarbonization strategy because there's so much that we can do with technologies that are currently on the market in all of these different sectors. 
Well, speaking of hard to decarbonize areas, the last one you guys tackle, uh, that last sector being industry, which is notoriously difficult to decarbonize. Talk a bit about how you would do that. It's a good point. Um, It's industry we find kind of routinely, both in terms of energy and heat uh, demands, but also in terms of the kind of process emissions that come out of manufacturing. They are really hard to eliminate. We've done some research on kind of the electrification potential of different industries, um, as well as kind of how the remaining demand for especially heat in particular can be, ma- can be met with hydrogen. And so we are using that at the moment to, to represent kind of a shift to a cleaner energy source um, in the model. And I'll just note that one thing that's not often discussed enough is that it's really important that if, if hydrogen does take off and become kind of this clean fuel that we want it to be for, for industry especially, uh, that hydrogen has to be produced in a clean way or it, or it really doesn't provide a whole lot of climate benefit. Um, and so we look at um, providing industry with green hydrogen uh, as well as some electrification in the EPS to try and get at those um, high emission heat uh, generating technologies. And on the process emission side, we, uh, we implement a handful of process emissions policies uh, that Megan alluded to, including things like phasing out uh, refrigerants, HFCs, uh, improved methane capture and destruction, and so on to try and get at those uh, emissions from those industrial processes. But I think, uh, to your point, Julia, the industry sector is one area in particular where the, the technology pathway is not nearly as well understood um, and kind of how we're going to get to the level of decarbonization that's needed to get on a net zero pathway uh, is still very much in discussion. So finally, I understand that you guys did not engage uh, in depth in this simulation going to net zero with agriculture. Can you just touch on that and, and why uh, that wasn't a main focus for your for your work? Particularly for agriculture and other kind of process emissions or non-energy emissions, I'll say, we rely on data from the EPA. So the EPA has this great report that they actually just updated this last fall. And I think it's called something like global mitigation of non-CO2 gases. Um, And we look to that report to try and understand what the mitigation or abatement potential is of of these non-CO2 processes. And what we found is that when we looked at agriculture, which is a very large source of emissions in the U.S., I think it's about 15% of total greenhouse gases, um, even when you max out the kind of reduction or abatement that the EPA identifies, it's a pretty small amount of abatement um, because so much of those agriculture emissions are from livestock, from, from cattle in particular, and their technologies today just don't really exist at scale to significantly tackle those emissions. So uh, we would love to see more technologies emerge in that area, and it's definitely an important um, part of the economy to decarbonize in the long run. But today, um, the technologies just aren't really there. Um, And so we didn't focus as much on that, in particular for the net zero scenario. And so we are seeing innovation in some other areas, things like the digital grid, and we can get really wonky on some new uh, energy storage technologies. I guess, 
How do those latest new iterations factor into a macro sort of picture like this? Can any one of those innovations you think really make this net zero scenario that much easier? Or those kind of assumptions built into your model in some way or another? Or is there some kind of silver bullet that could come up along the way? I'm curious what you make of both the things that we know that exist policy-wise and then some of the future innovations we see coming down the pike. Could any of those really change the, the picture here? Well, I think, for example, if battery costs continue to fall, how they're projected to fall, or if there's new battery technologies, or, um, for example, we have a major breakthrough in a seasonal or long-term storage for the power sector, those things could all lower the costs and make the transition easier. But I think that kind of by and large, we actually have a lot of the tech today to decarbonize much of the economy. I mean, we've basically got it to get at least to 85 or 90 plus percent of decarbonization in the power sector. You know, electric vehicles are evolving quickly. Um, to Megan's point, there's there's new technology emerging for, for long-haul trucking that will be important. And certainly if there were a breakthrough there, that would be immensely helpful in decarbonizing transport. But I think that the pieces are kind of there and we kind of know what's needed. Now, you know, new IT or software tech can help with all of that and smooth it. But I, I don't personally see, uh, like, you know, any of these things having a major breakthrough in the transition. So my last question is, if you had to pick someone's policy bracket from our last episode, either Jesse, Leah's, Brandon or Shane's, whose would you pick? I would have picked Jesse's um, because it uh, decarbonizes the fastest and has the largest cumulative reductions. And at the end of the day, that's what we're going for. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was hard to pick between Jesse and Leah. They put together uh, some really nice uh, policies. I probably would also go with Jesse for the point about the cumulative emissions reductions. His carbon tax really kicked off coal in the early years, uh, but points for Leah for saying that if she had had the room, she would have designed her CES to reach 100% even earlier than 2050. So that would have helped out in that regard, too. Right. And we are seeing, again, politicians engage with these policies uh, in a meaningful way, bringing up the deadlines to dates like 2030. And so we'll be looking back to you guys for modeling out what exactly that means and how we get there. Thank you so much for walking us through this. Absolutely. Thank you, Julia. Thanks, Julia. Really happy to help. And that does it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked the Decarb Madness approach, if you thought that was fun and interesting, we'd love to hear from you. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It was a novel way of approaching a policy discussion, but if you appreciated it and you want us to do more creative content like that going forward, please leave us a note. Also, if you haven't yet, please hit subscribe and follow along for future episodes. We're also on Twitter at poly underscore climate. Head over there. Let us know your thoughts. We always love hearing from you in real time. All right, that's it. So long.